This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. Our Father, we thank you that you are our Father, that you love us to the point of pain at times, and we ask that as we learn today about the discipline of your church, that you would teach us to receive it gladly, that you would teach us to hunger for it and to love it as a token of your fatherly affection. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, So when I say discipline, what do you think? Let's do some free association. Discipline. What? Spankings. Rebukes. Ooh. Everyone just sort of averts their eyes. <laughs> Athletes. Athletes. All right, good. Yeah. Athletes. Um, so we're pretty much thinking along the lines of pain. The thing itself, the discipline as it is inflicted on us by other people. Um, for some other goal, in the case of athletes, especially it's prominent. Um, When I talk about discipline, and in this talk, sermon, is is going to approach discipline from the whole shebang, the whole whole, uh, spectrum. So, but what I want us to do first is think of image. Okay, there's a goal to discipline. It's not just, you know, the whoopings for the whoopings sake. There's a goal. There's a reason why we do it. There's a reason why the athlete, you know, ties the sail on his back and tries to run the 100 meters or whatever they do. Um, there's, there's a reason why you endure that pain. And in the scriptures, one of the ways of, of, of describing that goal is the image. Paul says, um, not there. Hold on a second. Paul says, Galatians 6... He says this. No, he says Galatians chapter 4, chapter 419. And you don't have to turn there, but thank you for turning there. You will have to turn somewhere later. He says this incidentally as he's exhorting the Galatians. He says, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. And you know the book of Galatians is all about Paul's agony because these people are forsaking the gospel. And he he just pauses. He doesn't even finish that sentence because he's in such earnest. My children, with whom I am again in labor, I'm having to bear you all over again. Moms, how many times would you like to bear the same child? (laughs) Paul speaks in those those words because he's going through pain. They're going through pain. We don't remember childbirth as babies, mercifully, because it's, it's probably not pleasant for the kid either. But he says, I'm again in labor until Christ is formed in you. The purpose of discipline is the formation of Christ in his people. And he says in Colossians 1, he says, we proclaim him, Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present 
every man complete in Christ. There's a finish line for the work of discipline. And it's the day when our faith is made sight and your elders or pastors or every parent who's ever existed gets to push the fruit across the finish line and collapse and say, here, Jesus is, is the work that you gave me to do. And we want that work to be completion of Christ's work in us. For this purpose also I labor, striving, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. When I asked you about discipline, everybody mentioned the pain involved, because that's what we think of. Discipline is not a pretty word. The book of Hebrews says all discipline is sorrowful. But afterwards, to those who've been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Okay, let's pray. No, just kidding. We're, uh, you, you know, so now you've got, you've got the end. The end is in mind. All right. Um, so by the, end of, by the end of our time, I want you not just to think of pain, but I want you to think of the whole purpose of the church, the life of the church that involves discipline. Um, we were talking about discipline of children, and you know the usefulness and utility of disciplining children in, in your home, and how uh, I can tell you in my home, to a certain extent, my children are still young, we have one creeping closer and closer to teenageness, and the fear that it strikes in my heart, but for her age, at her level of progress, I can see what we worked really hard on when she was two and three and four is now yielding in some measure, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I love to be around my daughter. And other people do. And, and it's a credit to this church 10 years ago that when people from this church came to ours in uh, Charleston for my ordination, um, the people in my church made the comment, people in the North just know how to raise their children. You know, because they were well behaved. You know, as, as speaking of the Spady children. And... Um, and so, you know, we've had to say, well, no, it, it's not geography. <laughs> it's not the, the rarefied northern air. It's discipline. Um, so, but I'm talking about the discipline of children, and that's not church discipline, right? Yes. It is church discipline. It's job one, right? The family is a little church. And it's part of the bigger church, and it's subject to the bigger church, but still, discipline begins with the hands that feed you, okay? Um, so if you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And if you don't, I'm going to read it anyway. Don't panic. Hebrews chapter 12. And it's a passage I don't think we all often associate the whole thing with discipline, but it gets there. But I'm going to say the whole beginning of chapter 12 of Hebrews is about discipline, church discipline. So... Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Keep your Bibles open, because we're going to stay there for a little bit. But that first part that we're all familiar with, run with endurance, the race marked out for you. 
We think of that in positive terms, finish line. I'm going somewhere with it. Um, but we need to also see this is a call for the first level of discipline, namely the discipline of the self. Okay, church discipline starts with my own self. Lay aside every sin, every encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us. It's the call to discipline ourselves. Scripture tells us this again and again and again and again. Sins need to be laid aside, and the things that lead there, or may, right? So, for example, Facebook. Facebook can, in theory, be a great thing. Keep people close, and, but you know, you know, what's the statistic? One in five or two in five divorces start on Facebook. Um, if you're using it for good right now, fine, but beware. How much time do you spend on it? How do you rely for your sense of personal worth on the number of likes you get, pictures of your children? You need to be constantly vigilant about checking these things that tend somewhere. And that's an encumbrance. That's an encumbrance we need to lay aside that may become a sin, which we need to. So get rid of it. Discipline yourself. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 1 Timothy 4 7. Colossians 3 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetous. He's talking to you as a church and in individuals. Put it aside. You have a responsibility for your discipline. Colossians 3 8. But now you also put them all aside anger, wrath, malice, abusive speech. Matthew 18 8. The most dramatic disciplinary language in Scripture. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet enter into hell. Okay? The eternal fire. So our passage in Hebrews teaches us Jesus himself did that. He himself suffered. Um, we fix our eyes on Jesus because he's the author and perfecter of the faith. And he had a goal in mind for the joy set before him. And you think about, I'm an only child. Any only children in the crowd here? Only children? Really? My brother's 16 years older than me, so I was by myself all the time. Okay, all right, all right. You still have to divide the inheritance. Yeah, okay. Okay. The verdict has been passed. You know, an only child, uh, you know, it's not our fault most of the time, you know. Um, but it's, you know, you see brothers and sisters all the time. You see this, this company of people that are close because they've just always been around each other. And you kind of want that. Well, we had an elder brother who wanted brothers and sisters, you know. And he knew the only way he was going to get them was to suffer for him and purchase him. Kind of weird imagery here, but you know, purchase the adoption of his brothers and sisters, his younger siblings. Jesus, our elder brother, and he so he endured pain. And you think of Garden of the Gethsemane, just to be able to pray, "Not my will, but yours be done," is the fruit of the discipline of Jesus' life. And we even read from the book of Hebrews five eight, Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered learned obedience from the things he suffered. He had to learn what obedience was. Otherwise, what? You're always doing your pleasure, right? Um, through all eternity past, Jesus Almighty was 
you know, we'll talk, we could talk about the ontological, you know, relationships in the Trinity and what was submission and what wasn't. But when he became man and had to live around sinners and talk to sinners and be rejected and scorned by sinners, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And the fact that Jesus suffered so that he could learn shows us something, that discipline isn't just correction, it's formation. It's formation. He was being trained for his job. And if Jesus needed to learn through suffering, if the suffering of self-discipline as well as imposed discipline, if that was part of Jesus' training, you think you might be able to go without ever being disciplined, ever undergoing discipline? Verse 4, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Verse 5, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Having established, you know, we, we all need discipline. Training, admonition, rebuke. God faithfully disciplines those he loves. He's always disciplining his children through providence. Right? Uh, has Jesus formed you through hardship? Has he carried you through pain? Think of the witness of Scripture. Jacob had to serve Laban. You know, that just wasn't a fluke. That wasn't random factors in the universe coming together on Joseph. It wasn't jo Jacob's bad luck that he had to serve Laban. He was being formed, right? Um, Joseph had to go to Egypt, sold into slavery. He hadn't done anything wrong, necessarily. I mean, you could argue he should have kept his mouth shut or been a little more discreet about those dreams. <laughs> but what was, what was the prison time? It was formative discipline and it was it was suffering for a greater good later he says you know you meant it for evil God meant it for good the childlessness of Abraham and Sarah you know childlessness isn't something to to waste that's a gift as, as a discipline um, Abraham had to wait a long time for Isaac and got into trouble along the way but God was forming him the period of slavery of Israel and Egypt, the discipline of having to eat bread every morning, go out and get bread in the wilderness. And that's all he had to eat. And they grumbled against it, but that was formative. God was teaching them, you depend on me every day in the wilderness. There's also discipline of correction, expulsion from the garden, the serpents in the wilderness, you know, the snakes that came up and bit the Israelites. And, and then... Um, Moses furthered the discipline by making the snake and putting it on a pole so they could look at their sin and be healed. And then Jesus said, you know, I, I'm that. Um, Uzziah, the great king, did a lot of great things, was king for a long, long time. And later in life, he got carried away by his presumption, went into the temple, burned incense, and that wasn't what he was supposed to do. God disciplined him, corrected him, made him a leper. Um, Paul, what was Paul's story of discipline? You remember, I got a thorn in my flesh, and why? To keep me from, it was a messenger from Satan, to keep me from exalting myself, right? 
Paul saw glorious things. Paul was the one Jesus talked about when, when Jesus said every scribe that becomes a child of the kingdom you know, brings things out of his treasures old and new. You know, this was Paul. That was Paul. And, and to keep Paul from being carried away with himself, God made him suffer. We don't know how, but it was all to rely on the grace of God. It was formative for Paul. We need discipline. God disciplines us. Whether we arrange it for ourselves or not, God will discipline us. The author of Hebrews says, uh, Hebrews 12.7. So look there with me. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not rather, much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Was their discipline perfect? No, it seemed best to them. The discipline we endure is from vessels of clay, failures who do the best they can. Right? They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he for our good that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Okay. What, what's the author doing here? He's appealing to common sense. Okay. So he's gone to scripture he says, you know, the, the Bible says God loves you. That's why he disciplines you. But then he says, and you all know this from your own experience. And you all have seen broken homes where um, the mother is always suffering because the father on his weekends, no boundaries, you know, very permissive. Kids get to do whatever they want, eat whatever they want. They come to mama. She says no. And they start screaming at her. You know, what's going on there? Is that father loving the child? He's testifying of their illegitimacy. They're just, in his mind, now they've become tools to get back at mama. Right? Or they've, they've become tools to assuage his own guilt for what he did to mama or to them. But fathers, good fathers, not perfect fathers, but fathers discipline their children because they have another goal in mind. You know, in, in Charleston, there's a, there was a dad uh, that I hadn't seen much of. I, I'd seen him a couple times, and then his son showed up in church one Sunday, and I looked at him, and I just, I knew right away who he belonged to. I walked up to him, John, you're the spitting image of your dad. He said, yeah, he marked me up pretty good, didn't he? Marked me up pretty good. That's how they describe family resemblance in Charleston. He marked me up pretty good. Every father wants his son to be like him in some, some way. Not every way. But in, 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 we have virtues in mind that we think are our virtues. And we want to stamp our kids with that stamp. Now some of us want to mark our kids up by marrying attractive women to sort of cover up, you know, what we have to offer them. But for character, for character, we want to impress, make our imprint on our kids in the, in the future and f so that when we're dead, 
we have a missionary still on the ground. You know, we send our kids into a time we'll never see. All of our kids are going to be missionaries for us. They won't go to far off lands, but they'll go to a far off time. And so the job of a loving father is I got to get my kids ready for when I'm dead. And, you know, mother's the same, same concern. So God prescribes discipline. He does discipline. He appeals to common sense. Here, you know this. Everybody believes in discipline. Everybody in this room, you all following me, right? With me so far? Okay. Nothing controversial. Everybody believes in discipline. And if, if, you, if you don't agree with me, try this experiment. Take your kid or somebody else's kid that you're friends with. Take him to Kroger. Oh, you probably shouldn't do this with your friends. Take him to Kroger. Wait for him to disobey you. And then while they're in the checkout line, tell them to do something and they can't do it. And, and just yank their pants down and start spanking them in front of the manager, in front of the checkout person, and in front of you know, the social worker behind you in line. You will find out that everyone believes in discipline. Right? Somebody's going to say something. Somebody might make a phone call. Somebody may escort you out of the building or hold on to you until someone can come and get you. Everybody disciplines. From, I think the more pathetic example I've heard of recently was Stephen Hawking disciplining Israel by just not showing up, you know. Um, but he's trying to discipline he's trying you know that's what he said anyway um, Ed Snowden 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 wants to discipline the US and a lot of people are right there with him and if they're not with him they want the US to discipline Ed Snowden everybody believes in discipline Um, the Christian bed and breakfast owner who wants to deny a room to a homosexual couple We'll find out that for his discipline, he will be disciplined. Um, the, the pastor who tries to discipline the matriarch of the prominent family in his church will himself be subject to discipline. I had a pastor tell me over lunch once, he said, Andy, the thing is, it depresses me. Every church practices discipline. Every single church practices church discipline. But there's only ever one subject and only ever one outcome. It's the pastor and we fire him. That's church discipline, right? Everybody believes in discipline. It's not strange. It's everywhere. People who don't believe in disciplining children will quickly and decisively discipline those who do. So as the passage says, everybody does this. Everybody knows this. But it goes further. If if you don't do this, if, if this hasn't been done to you, you're not a son. Okay? So it's something that at one point in our lives we've all craved as a mark of our belonging, of our sonship. My dad loves me. That's why I can't sit down today. <laughs> okay? And when they grow up, they will, they will acknowledge that. And probably, most probably, in my life where I've seen it is right after the discipline, you see that your children turn to you and love you. Right? I mean, you've inflicted agonizing toy. If the level of screams emitting from my children is any indication, 
you know, that I've inflicted pain. Now, that's their opinion, okay? And I, I don't use anything else. Was, when, when, well, I won't say that, okay. <laughs> but, but um, you know, you use your hand, you don't do, do too much before. But, they, but the hand that inflicted the pain is, the, is connected to the arm they want to reach around them afterward, every single time. You know, tears, and they just want to cuddle up, and, and and then you explain, and you preach the gospel to them, and you pray with them, and you know, okay. Because I love my kids, I make them feel what sin is like, and God is that way. He is our Father, who disciplines His children and wants that for us. Now, so far so good, nothing controversial. Verse twelve. Verse twelve. There's not going to be any controversy. Verse 12. It's the Bible. It says it right there. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the... So who's he talking about? Strengthen the hands that are weak. Does he mean bind your own hands up? You know, like the, the Chuck Norris thing, uh, Chuck Norris can tie his shoes with his feet. You know, does he mean to bind up your own hands with your hands? No. He's saying, look left, look right. You see weakness, you see people who need help. And he says, help them out. Make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. A lot of broken joints in the church. You know, a lot of different kinds of childhoods in the church. A lot of different, never heard that before, in the church. Strengthen them. Go to them. Bind up. Wrap the broken arm. Correct the, the broken understanding of what fatherhood is. You know, my dad disciplined me. He always enjoyed it. And he used... Wait a minute. That's, that's a broken arm, right? So go to that person, go to that son, go to that daughter, and say, it doesn't have to be that way. Let me show you. And we speak to one another in love, and we correct before it bears its evil fruit. We correct the, the broken limbs. Pursue peace with all men in the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Um, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. You know, it's not my business to say. You know, that's between him and his God. You know, that's, I don't think I'm called to, to intervene there. He has, has, have they come to us with this problem? Did they contact us? Did they ask us to give them advice? Okay, look, in hell, nobody's going to be angry because you spoke to them about their sin. Okay? They'll be angry because they didn't listen. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Whose soul are you responsible for? Yeah, make eye contact with somebody. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. 
that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance even though he sought for it with tears. And you're supposed to think, I will live to see that day when that person I didn't speak to sees their children do the same thing they did. I'll live to see that day when they're begging for the blessing and they realize I can't get that back. Okay? Think about that with the person sitting on your left, the person sitting on your right. Believers have to help each other. Okay? My discipline, self-discipline, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will still be corrupted by my own sin. And I need, I need a stereoscopic vision. I need not just to look at myself. I need you looking at me and show me where I'm blind. Show me what I need. And, and you need that from me. There are weak and feeble knees all around us. We need help from one another. And the Bible says this, you know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Right? Um, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Well, that's an abrasive action. Sparks are going to fly, but it's going to be sharp. It's going to be useful. You ever had a dull knife? Doesn't do anything. Okay. So now we see. Okay, discipline. We need it. We need it. We need it for ourselves. We need. We, we're going to experience it from God, and we need it from each other. And we owe it to each other. Follow me so far. So, just like I was when I was um, a little parent. Uh, I knew, yeah, okay, okay, I need to do it. How? Okay. The most terrifying thing is to begin disciplining children for the first time. Well, God tells us how to discipline in the church. Matthew 18. Go to Matthew 18. So Hebrews 12 has told us we need it. Jesus did it. Jesus underwent it. We need it from each other. We need help. Matthew 18. 18 comes after 15. How do we do it? Starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, those of you with Bibles, how many Bible translations say against you? How many, it doesn't say that? Yeah, okay. It's a textual thing, don't know. There are enough clues in this passage and in what I've already said that you can just, you, you can read against you or you cannot. But if your brother sins, if your brother sins, it doesn't have to be directed toward you. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So at what point you know, you say church discipline and mention things like excommunication and what, you know, 
At what point does the formal inquisition begin? Right? I mean, if it's a fear that we have of, of an institutional action, you know, we've forgotten everything that leads up to that. Right? It's, and it's, okay. Now, verse 15, if your brother sins, if your brother sins or sins against you, he says, go take care of it in private. Don't write an editorial about the person in the local paper. Don't complain to your husband about it. So-and-so said such and such, and I, and don't unburden yourself to your counselor, hairdresser, children. Don't mention it to the pastor. It's a prayer request. Okay. He says not to ask people their opinion. Now, I want to just be sure and run these words by you. See how you take it. Um, I hate your guts. You're miserable. <laughs> now, would you? Sh am I right to think that that shouldn't have been? Okay. He doesn't say ask the elders if you should really do something. He says just go and talk to him about it. Okay. And this can be, you know, as as heavy hitting or as lighthearted as you want to make it, right? So. It wasn't a sin against me, but I, I noticed one of the little girls in my church was into a certain kind of music. And I, so I thought, you know, we should, we should address this. So I just printed out the lyrics to one of the songs and went over to the dad and said, hey, let me read something to you. And I read it to him as a sort of a love poem. And, and I, I looked at him right in the eye and I said, Ooh, baby, 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 ooh, baby. Oh, baby, 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 baby. And, you know, that was it, right? He knew what I was talking about, and, okay. At other times, it's gonna be, it's gonna be harder to do. That was when Justin Bieber first was making his rounds. And, and this little girl was like six, you know. Ooh, baby, baby, oh, baby, you know, this little southern thing. anyway. So sometimes it just, all it takes is, you know, pointing out, hey, this is really dumb, you know. Sometimes it has to be a little harder and more forceful. But one thing that it cannot be is your method of forgiving them. You can't go to somebody and confront them in their sin as a means of forgiving them, right? You got to do that first. Why? Because when you go, you're going to start piling offense on offense on offense on offense. So you want your kids going to hell. That's why. That's why they say those things to my kids, and you you aren't disciplined. You're not. Okay. Well, it's, it's obviously you shouldn't do that. But so often, we contribute to other people's sins because we won't get over their sins. And we want them to feel in their person the sin that they made me feel in my person. And, you know, when we understand that, you know, it's fine. But I just want you to realize that when you said that, it made me feel like, okay? And what are you trying to do? You're trying to pay forward the pain of their sin. 
but you're supposed to go to them. Jesus is sending you, having forgiven you of your 10,000 talent debt, and you're going to go talk to them about your 100 denarii. And who's going to feel their sin? Who do you want to feel their sin? You want Jesus Christ to feel their sin, right? He's going to, that's what the cross is about. So that I don't have to keep inflict teaching you about sin by, by saying, you know, this is, how, this is how it really hurt, you know, and boom! And do you see that? You see how that might make me kind of angry? Okay, I forgive you. And then, and then we go on, and he doesn't do it anymore, and we're all happy, right? But we got two black eyes, and nothing's landed on the cross. What have I done? I've made him atone for the sin he committed against me. So, when somebody sins against you, go to them, having forgiven them, because your goal is, verse 15, you've won your brother. Because I want him. I want him. I want to love him. I want him and me to be brothers for all eternity. Okay? We don't go to test him to see if he can pass the test of brotherhood. All right. So when he listens to you, and you get, you know, and, and you've won him back, then you go off and you talk to your hairdresser's boy, you know, so-and-so, you know, he landed this sucker punch on me, and I, I punched him. We're good now. And then it's over. It's over. It didn't happen. I'll forgive. But I'm not going to forget. What is that? What is that? Huh? Yeah. That's a root of bitterness. Roots of bitterness grow really fast. Put it to death. Put it behind you. Okay. That's, that's revenge. That's, okay. Pride wants to make a show of ignoring the offense while secretly we remember. Okay. Now, um, we, we referred to the, well, right after this, Peter shows that he understands things. Peter always shows that he understands things the way that we do. And he says, uh, you know, Jesus is just talking to him about confronting these things and taking him to the church and if he listens and if he doesn't and what have you. And then Peter says, well, so Jesus hadn't said the word forgiveness, right? But Peter knows what he's talking about. Peter says, well, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Right? So Peter understands what's necessary with discipline. It has to be disciplined by forgivers. Without forgiveness, there can only be escalation. Um, Leviticus 19.17 Don't hate your brother in your heart. Don't hate him. Next sentence. And you shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. Leviticus 19.17 You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor. What's the implication? If I try to... Everything's just fine. It's okay. What do you do when somebody sins against you? Oh, that's okay. Somebody says, you know, you ought to talk to them. Well, that's okay. It's not a big deal. What's the implication of Leviticus, Leviticus 19, 17? 
the means of loving your neighbor is rebuke so that you can forget. You know, well, forget and then by rebuking. You shall rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. If you don't deal with it, your forgiveness will only be an intention. Right? Okay. So do it. Um, now, what happens if your brother doesn't listen? Jesus tells us, Matthew 18, 16, If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Now, this is where the church comes in through the officers to begin to help sometimes. Okay? Uh, and I say sometimes because if, if you do this in Charleston, Mississippi, the two or three that you bring with you will be your, your buddies, your, your closest friends, you're the people who agree with you already. You know, and, and so it's a help, it's always a help to have a church family from which you may draw out someone who loves both of you, who's related to both of you through the blood of Christ. Right, so bring two or three. So far, it's been you and the one sinned against you. Now you've brought in two or, or one or two others, and hopefully they're not partisans. Uh, they're just lending neutral ears. If it appears that you're in the right, they'll add their pleas to the offender's ears. And this is the moment when too often it becomes clear that this meeting of one or two, two or three others, two or three total people, should have happened about five years ago. And, and you realize that you're being brought in now to issue the condemnation that the one is pleading for. There are, there are a lot of meetings between um, the pastor and the married couple where a couple of minutes into the conversation, you just know the wife is only going to be satisfied if you can snap your fingers and the husband dies an agonizing, excruciating death in flames. You know? Yeah. Just, why did you bring me here? Because you wanted me to condemn him. You don't want to forgive. You don't want there to be any reconciliation because long ago he sinned against you and you said, well, it's okay. And then he sinned against you and you thought, well, it's because his dad, his dad, you know, does these things to his family. That's okay. And then his dad dies. And then, well, that's because his mom is, you know. And you just keep passing on. You pile on. And pretty soon there's nobody else to blame but him. And it's, 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 it's too late. Okay? Root of bitterness. Um, Lord, shall we call down fire on them? Right? I mean, the disciples were people. They had a sense of justice. Let's call down fire on them. Uh, you don't know what spirit you're of. But we're righteous. Okay. So, if you're trying to win your brother, you have to forgive him before he's repented. You have to appeal for help before he's repented. Then he may turn away. I mean, it's pretty hard to resist two people you love or three people you love coming to you and tenderly, in a spirit of gentleness, 
correcting you. I mean, unless you've let it run on and you've become hard. Okay? At least you can feign contrition or make some kind of apology. You know, at least play along. Um, but, you know, then you live to die another day. Make sure then, then that in your church you've cultivated relationships with people, especially with some of the elders. Make sure the pastor knows your name. Okay? Um, I remember at ECC shaking your hand for the first time. And you don't remember me from ECC probably, or that other church in town. Formerly, formerly yeah, the, the church formerly known as. Um, but I, I remember I walked right on by, it was my habit. He had a lot of hands to shake and reached out and grabbed me physically and brought me back and, I'm Tim. <laughs> you know. Make sure that your pastor is that kind of pastor. And if he's not, help him. I mean, bless their hearts. Some of us are just naturally <laughs> retiring. But make sure they know you. Make sure they know you before you need them. You know what I mean? Um, because the worst feeling, in the, and they ought to make sure they know you before you need them. Because the worst thing in the world is to get the call, and I don't know these people, and i got to sort through, okay, who, who's your dad? Who's your mom? What, what's your background? And you got to build all these things. And it's just, I just send them to hell. Just send them to, you know. And whoa, you got to, you can't back up then, you know. Okay. So, they may turn away. And, and, and if they don't, you bring, you keep bringing. And then finally, you know, the, they have to go before the church. We, we understand that to be the, the elders of the church. It has to come before a court, is what we call the session, is, is, a, is a kind of court, local court. And they hear the case and they make a judgment or they, um, make a, they prescribe, they counsel, they rebuke and admonish, they do their work, and you'll either obey, your brother will either obey or will suffer um, being cut off. In, in the case of, um, of that, he says, and I'm getting my notes out of order. In the case of that, he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. You know, you're free to hate him then. Right? That's what Jesus did to Gentiles and tax collectors, right? He hated them. Uh, no. No. But what are Gentiles and tax collectors? Gentiles are people who don't know God. They don't know the God. They may worship all these little idols, but they don't know the true God yet. So what are they? Candidates for evangelism. You don't cast them away. You see them in the grocery store. I pray for you every day. I want you to come back. I want you to repent. I want you, you two should not be together. You know, and you keep preaching to them. You don't cast them away. They're not Christians. You don't treat them like Christians. You treat them like they need the gospel. And a tax collector, tax collector, somebody more analogous to our situation who has made profession or they belong in some sense to the, they may be Jews, but they live as practical atheists. Okay? And, and that's your role in their life is to call them to repent from their practical atheism. You're not repenting. You, you got great family tradition, but you need to be born again. 
Okay, and that's what he now. For elders, for sessions, for pastors, it's a very fearful thing to go to somebody and do these kinds of things. You may not take the Lord's Supper. Um, you are not of the number of the faithful. We believe, and you can read, I didn't print out, should have printed out some of the forms of excommunication from the, the Dutch church or the old, uh, some of the older churches. And they were very intense. Give you the address of the person. So we have met with so-and-so of 210 North Waverly Street, Charleston, Mississippi, and we have admonished them on three occasions, and they have not been repentant, and so we have excommunicated them. Um, if you see these people, you may not enjoy Christian fellowship with them. You will plead with them about their souls and not converse with them about trivial things. And it was very, you know, this person is in danger. Throw up the red flag. Help! And that's a very heavy, weighty thing. But what's the guarantee from Jesus' own lips? Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now some translations try to take out the awkwardness of that grammar. It's sort of a, a part of speech train wreck. There's a lot going on. He shifts tenses a lot. And only the NASB is stodgy enough to put in every single word. Um, but you don't really need every single word. We just have good translations so that you know how to understand yours. But what it means, there's a... I mean, so listen to that. Whatever you bind on earth, whatever you did, shall, in the future, shall have been bound in heaven. Okay. <laughs> Think about that. Whatever you did shall be have been you know, shall, future, have been, past. However we understand what Jesus is saying, what, what we can't escape is there is a guarantee that Jesus will ratify the faithful execution of his will when it comes through the church. Okay? Okay, there are fallen people, there's all this other thing, you know, and, but what we said last night, on this rock I will build my church, and there's this big fight, is that about Peter, is that about Peter's confession, or is it about, uh, it was, well, he's giving authority, he gives the keys to Peter and to the disciples, but four verses after that, what, what is Peter called? Not the rock, if he's even called the rock there. He's called Satan. Satan. Why? Because that's the point where he takes his eyes off of the purpose of God and puts it on the purpose of man. So yeah, there can be faithless, non-binding actions of a session. But if, if, if the leaders of the church are faithful men, if they love the Lord Jesus and they love you, and you've seen all your life that they love you, and now they're being hard on you. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been. Okay? They're doing something that will be ratified by Jesus, or already has. You know, the, the um, early church fathers said the church is the part of creation that existed before the sun and the moon. And in fact, all creation exists in some manner of speaking for the church. Because why? 
chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Jesus loves his church, right? And he's, and he's given keys to the church because he loves the church and he's not going to let the church be overpowered. And so when you are disciplined or rebuked or admonished or someone comes to you and says, Ooh, baby, 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 ooh, baby, you know. <laughs> okay, that's it. That's, you, you can tremble at little things. Don't despise the day of small things because they'll lead you somewhere, right? And you'll be faithful in little things. You'll be entrusted with big things when your children are teenagers and, and their music is bearing its horrible fruit in their lives. You'll have wished I would have taken that Silly pastor, a little more seriously, okay? Um, okay, so that's all I'm going to say about that. Let me pray for us, and then there will be time for half a question. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for your people. You've given us uh, the promise of your fatherly discipline that we see in providence in general. And to make sure that those lessons are not lost on us, you've given us the church. You've given us elders, pastors, deacons. You've given us brothers and sisters who are faithful in the, in the Lord and will be in the flesh to us, your discipline. Would you protect us from the hardness of heart that comes from, from bitterness, from anxiety, from the pride that wants to boast and not admit wrong, would you deliver us from, from despising our brothers and sisters just because they're in the flesh? We thank you for the Lord Jesus who presented God to us in the flesh so that we would know that, yes, we are offended by God. And Father, I pray for your protection on us. May we be tenderhearted always, and may we always find faithful shepherds in this world to do this work for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.